0: Thanks for sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship.
1: Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app.
0: You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com/HealingPaths. That's Path with an S.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm John T.
0: And I'm Jackie P.
1: Today on our show, we are talking with Craig Cashwell. Uh, Craig is a professor in the Department of Counseling and Educational Development at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, He also has a part-time private practice which he focuses on uh, helping couples and um, people who are struggling with addiction. Uh, Craig is a distinguished researcher and author. He has over 125 research citations. And he's also the co-author of the book in the Shadows of the Cross, a Christian Companion to Facing the Shadow. So welcome to the show today, Craig.
2: Much. Good to be with you.
1: Yeah, so we, we asked Craig on the show today, um, as I've read your work and I've heard you speak at uh, CSAT Symposium and, and things like that, um, you talk a lot about the concept of bypass. So that's what we've asked Craig on the show today um, to, to talk about. So uh, Craig, could you describe for our listeners what does bypass mean and why is it something that we'd want to focus on in addiction recovery?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think you know bypass can take lots of different forms. The one that I've studied and, and written about the most is spiritual bypass. So using mm-hmm. spirituality, the way I think of it is as sort of like, um, uh, the way I always simplify it is are you moving towards something or are you moving away from something? Mm. And so spiritual bypass really is when Person is using their spiritual lives, uh, spiritual life, their spiritual experience, their spiritual beliefs to really avoid um, what we would typically call as therapists what we would call psychological avoidance. Um, So they're either moving away from their present moment experience um, or they're moving away from the emotions that they're experiencing. So there are these undesirable emotions and they will either over spiritualize that um, in a way that sort of allows them to kind of avoid that present moment experience. So um, I, I've seen it a lot with clients. When I, the first time I heard the concept, it really kind of blew my mind. I grew up in a religious community and it really put some language on some things that I had seen and experienced um, mm-hmm. in my own
1: development. Yeah. It seems like one of those, I've, I've had those experiences too, as a, a clinician hearing a term or a concept that really sheds a lot of light on my personal experience and, and kind of the, the relationships around me. Um, so. Talk to us a little bit. How did this develop from this, like hearing the concept into you now kind of being deep in the research on it?
2: Yeah. So um, it's, it's always interesting how that sort of unfolds. Um, I literally probably 15 years ago was walking with a good friend of mine at a conference and he used the term, um, which at that, that time, I think only um, John Wellwood uh, really was the only person who had written about it in the transpersonal psychology literature as this phenomenon that he observed. And uh, but when my friend spoke those words, I literally had a resonance to it. Like it literally went through me. Like I, I knew, mm. okay, I'm supposed to do something with this. Mm. Uh, this is too important of a concept. And so as I dug into the literature, you know, writing always starts with reading. So I just read everything that was written. And at the time, that was not a great deal. Ken Wilber was writing about it. Some, Wellwood was writing about it a little bit. These guys are far better thinkers than I was. And what they were really doing was sort of explaining the phenomenon. And as a therapist, what I wanted to do with my writing was expand that to, okay, well, that's great. This is a really important phenomenon to understand, but how do we help people who are struggling with spiritual bypass? And so I really sort of focused my scholarship in a very applied way. Um, And more recently, I'm, I'm excited to be working with a group of researchers, and we've developed developed a, a measurement of spiritual bypass um, oh interesting since, yeah consistently it's shown up we've done like four studies now i think and we've translated it uh into other languages already And we're doing some work in other languages as well to see how this shows up in other cultural groups so you know trying to it's it's a pretty esoteric concept, concept so to be able to sort of measure it in a way mm-hmm. uh, I think it's really going to promote good research so that we can not talk about it in just this abstract, esoteric way, but really sort of look at the so what. Um, in one of the studies we've got coming out pretty soon, one of the things I'm very excited about, we actually connected spiritual bypass to psychological help-seeking behavior, and the, and the, and the relationship was in the direction you would expect. People who are in spiritual bypass tend not to seek psychological help. Mm. So there's that tendency, to, But number one, there's this avoidance function, that they don't want to address whatever the struggles are, which can include addiction, of course. Um, but they also um, despiritualize the solution, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll pray it away, God's going to deliver me from this, whatever the belief system is for that person, and they miss the opportunity to do some of the important work of recovery.
1: Mm-hmm. Now that what you just described there, um, that's a situation I often find myself in with people that I I work with, where there's a lot of spiritualizing going on, and I'm wondering what have you found in the research as far as or or what what can you tell our listeners about the benefit of taking a look at that? Because when I when I bring that up with clients, often there's a lot of defensiveness with that because it feels like you're poking holes in my belief system, and that's important to me. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it is tricky, Um, and and certainly we can, as therapists, we can occasion resistance. I mean, if we just come at this real sort of head-on and real confrontational and challenging um, we, you know, my experience with that, both in my own clinical work and in doing clinical supervision, is uh, we typically get fired as therapists you know, yeah. because we don't honor and prize their uh, spiritual journey. And so while I completely think that bypass is uh, psychologically not helpful, unhealthy, I would even say. Um, I think we have to work with clients in a framework that honors their belief system. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I think about it is um, the the analogy that often comes up for me is that for an oyster to make a pearl, it has to have a grain of sand in it. It has to have that irritant. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: So no irritant, nothing changes And too much irritant, nothing changes. And so I try to find that one grain of sand, um, a way to sort of help a person think about that. Um, And, so, what does that look like? Well, I, I think I think the you know the motivational interviewing strategies work really well here. That you know you really validate and support their um, spiritual journey. Um, sometimes I will ask permission to introduce the idea that this psychological work might complement that really well. Mm. Um, and I think that asking permission is a really key part that I'm doing this from a real humble space and leaving them in charge and empowered so that they don't feel like I'm sort of attacking them and attacking their faith system. Mm-hmm. Um, the serenity prayer is a lovely little writing that uh, sort of is like, well, you, you might have some steps that you need to take. You might have some work that you need to do here. Uh, it may not all be about surrender. Um, and so that, that comes in handy from time to time, I think. Um, in, the, in the Christian tradition, there's an old saying that the good Lord helps those who help themselves. And mm-hmm. so I will sometimes pull that adage out if it seems appropriate to context. And so I think I, the way I think about it, though, is I really have to, as a clinician, I have to value the autonomy of the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they are um, really hanging on, you know, when we talk about people's spiritual journeys, we talk about, Um, they're either preserving, transforming, or developing a spiritual path. And if they're preserving their spiritual path, and they're really locked into that, I'm going to really work hard not to create power struggles in the room. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if that's where they stay, that's where they stay. And and with the ethical principle of autonomy, I have to be willing to let go of my own control issues um, and recognize that might not move for them. Uh, that might not shift for them but i am going to try to irritate it i am going to try to be that grain of sand that will irritate their um, their perspective just a little bit um, sometimes i've been wildly successful with that and like every therapist i would ha- i would have to confess that i have my share of of places where i've misstepped i've pushed a little too mm-hmm. hard i've not gotten any leverage I mean, this is not something that works all the
1: time for sure No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so that that has me curious um, like you, so you work with couples and you work with addiction. Do you ever have people coming to you because they recognize they're in spiritual bypass and they want help, or is that one of those things that recovery tends to push at whether you want it to or not? <laughs> I think it's
2: probably more the latter. Um, I think it, it probably just tends to kind of show up in the room. Um, you know, I'll have um, just not that long ago, I was working with a man in group who said he really didn't want to call what he had an addiction because that sounded so permanent and God was going to deliver him from this. Mm-hmm. The other guys in the group were all over that. <laughs> it's one of those great moments as a therapist where I could just gotta sit back and let the group kind of challenge that. Um but uh, he was also not doing, you know, he would have between session tasks, things to come back and report out to the group and work on. And he was consistently not doing anything and, and would even say pretty directly that to do that work was to diminish his faith in God. Mm-hmm. Um, that was saying, I don't trust you to deliver me from this. And you know, I give you three guesses. It was the first major kind of relapse and dropout in the group. That was a, that was a failure story. It just, mm-hmm. you know, just could not... The group and I somehow we couldn't quite get him into a space where he could see it's great to have faith I think every man in that room believed that miracles do happen um, and there was this work to be done mm-hmm. um, so, um, you know as far as people coming in presenting and bypass it, usually what people will tell me is they have struggled with it in the past and now mm-hmm. they recognize it um, and, and that it might still flare up for them from time to time but I think it's such an unconscious thing that it's probably pretty rare for clients to come in and present with bypass You just see it as a clinician, as you're listening to the narrative, mm-hmm. you see there's this avoidance. So, you know, tears will start to come up and they'll immediately spiritualize that and sort of mm-hmm. shut down that emotional piece. And you can just mm-hmm. sort of say like, okay, well this is, this is how they have coped. This is one of the ways yeah. to cope with this.
0: So what do you find in the research? I mean, I, with the clients that I work who are stuck in bypass, a spiritual bypass, a lot of it, this is the paradigm that they grew up in, right? And this is kind of what they were taught and it was reinforced over and over again for them to do and as a way to cope. But what do you find maybe the psychological underpinnings of spiritual bypass are connected to?
2: Yeah. So I think it's, I really think it's, it's just a bigger, I mean, we can, when we talk about bypass, we could talk about intellectual bypass. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of mm-hmm. overeducated people in the world that disconnect. And, you know, I may have been one of them at some point <laughs> in my life that, uh, you know, you, you, but, but the key point is avoiding your experience. And particularly for me, I value and really prize emotional experiencing. And I think that the true spiritual journey allows us to move into and through our emotional experiences rather than sort of, just running, screaming away from them as fast as we can, and so, and we know, you know, we we see these sort of contemporary cognitive theories like um, um, ACT and DBT. They really are kind of hitting this idea of psychological avoidance pretty hard, mm-hmm. and cultivating mindfulness so that people can stay in contact with their emotional experience in a compassionate way. Mm-hmm. Right. And with the idea that that's ultimately psychologically what's most healthy. And so I think I, I think there's just a human tendency to do that. We, we sort of, we, we like what feels good and we don't like what feels bad. And, mm-hmm. and when you layer that with some strong spiritual messages uh, that people receive from their childhood religion, uh, their families of origin, I think you get, I think you kind of get a perfect storm for this. Um, you know, I honestly, I, 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 the first time I heard the phrase spiritual bypass, having grown up in a religious community, I thought, well, that explains so much, including some of my own struggles. Right, right. I recognize this in myself, so I don't want to sound like that clinician who's being judgmental of other people. This is part of my own, part of my interest in this topic is personal. This is something that I had struggled with as well.
1: Yeah. So you had mentioned some of those strong spiritual messages what what are some of the strong spiritual messages you commonly hear or you commonly see coming up in bypass
2: yeah so i mean it's just the message that you you know if you have if you have enough faith um whatever your struggle is will be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, the language that you don't have to do anything and hungry, you know, that's sort of dangerous language mm-hmm. um the the one that I um, will my skin will bristle uh, hairs on my arms stand up is when I hear people basically saying don't feel um, mm-hmm. sort of the classic um, is uh, when there is a death um, or a significant loss and uh, you know the, the, the he or she has gone to a better place mm-hmm. um, which usually is offered and that may be. You know, theologically that may be what both people in the conversation believe but usually that said as a way to say so would you clean that messiness up mm-hmm. you know would you, right. you know don't feel all that because I can't handle that mm-hmm. I think is usually the message and so there's that that message of we should never be angry we should never be sad we should never be afraid we should never be ashamed it's like ooh, well you know we, we all feel all of those things, mm-hmm. and the avoidance of them is far more dangerous than the experience of them, the expression of them healthy ways, with healthy people.
1: Yeah, and we all feel those things so naturally. I mean, that's something in in the faith tradition that I come from and that I commonly work with. Um, I was talking with a client about those emotions, the anger, the sadness, um, that, and, and what I got repeated back to me was like oh so those carnal things we need to work on me being more accepting of those carnal things and just that term in that that christian faith tradition you could tell that was one of those like i I may go there but i'm not going to go there too deep that's dangerous
2: right yeah yeah and that's there's a there's a strong message there right like that's that's a that's a message that's been kind of imprinted on that individual probably from a very young age Mm -hmm. you know. About three quarters of people in the U.S. are Christian. I live in the southern U.S. There's a large, strong Christian community here, and so I'm probably the most well versed in, in gently kind of challenging that perspective because there are there are narratives in the Christian Bible of Jesus experiencing pretty strong emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I circle back around to that sometimes and just ask them, you know, again, if, if I'm not. I'm not going to hit anybody hard with anything because that's not going to create that, um, sort of cognitive dissonance that I'm looking for. Um, it's, it's, um, so I'm going to come at it much more gently, but I, I will sort, certainly bring those things up and just ask them how they reconciled that. Was this, was this the humanity of Jesus experiencing these carnal things or was is Jesus providing a model that maybe it's okay to feel these things? How do you, how do you kind of sift through that? How do you work mm-hmm. that out? and again people will do with that what they will but I am at least trying to kind of perturb mm-hmm. that, that cognitive structure that they have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah because that's one of the things I find too is people want to bypass that too like the fact that Jesus had those intense human emotional experiences like that's just kind of in the back of their mind and even bringing that to the forefront is a way to start challenging that because that's something I think that gets bypassed often
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it, it's it is interesting. I mean, when people get these structures created, like the idea that emotions are those or uh, that carnal, you know, anything that's spiritual is good, anything that's in the body is bad, is the mm-hmm. way I would think about that. The emotional experience is, of course, an inherently embodied experience. Um, when when people create those structures, they will die on the hill to to save those structures. Mm-hmm. They will really, because it's so threatening not to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where we have to recognize that we, as therapists, can create resistance if we go at this too directly, too hard. Try to shift this too quickly with clients, we're going to occasion that resistance. I mean, they will—they will fight us to the death. And 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 I also think it's you know if somebody's 40 years old and they this is the structure they've had their whole life, how arrogant of me to think I can speak words to it in one 30-second clip and I'm going to flip the way they think about that. So it really does i think it really does take some time and some patience and some intentionality to address bypass mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so craig did you start and this is i guess for some context for I me. Mean, did you start in working with addiction or did you start on this more academic side looking at bypass and things
2: yeah it was um, the latter um, i came to this more like um, a lot of my writing had been sort of ecumenical writing around spirituality and counseling how to Mm-hmm. ethically and competently integrate spirituality and counseling and support the spiritual development of clients for whom that was salient and important, mm-hmm. not imposing it certainly on those clients. I work with clients who are agnostic atheists, and that's just mm-hmm. not part of the treatment plan. Uh, but for many clients, their, their spiritual life is so important to them that um, I really wanted to help people figure out how to sort of integrate the psychological and the spiritual work in a way that was appropriate and boundary. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing spiritual direction. We were doing therapy. I always say, I'm a secular therapist who is interested in psycho-spiritual integration mm-hmm. um, as, a, as opposed to identifying myself as a pastoral counselor or a religious counselor. Um, so I was really kind of writing more around that piece when I stumbled into bypass. And I went, you know what? We've got to be careful here because if we're over-invested, as I think I probably have been at times, in this integration piece, and a client comes in and bypasses, And of course, you know, we we market ourselves as as, doing psycho spiritual integration or however we do that. We put it out there that that this is this there's room for this in the counseling room. Then we're going to draw those clients to us who are in bypass who just want to spiritualize their their psychological struggles. Mm -hmm. Um, if we're not really intentional about that. So I really kind of, honestly, I kind of had an Oh crap moment. If I don't write about bypass, all this writing about spirituality that I've done could actually be doing some harm. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to try to address that issue um, by talking about spiritual bypass. It was actually later that I came to an interest in addiction work and particularly sex addiction work. And I wrote a piece on bypass in the 12 steps. Mm that bypass shows up in people doing 12 step work is is one piece specifically around addiction.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's interesting because I think the majority of guests that we've interviewed on our show, they didn't come to sex addiction first. They came through another route. And just as you're talking about challenging some of those structures, you know, with the 40 year old person, I find, I find a parallel track in the addicts that I work with. This is a structure that's been in place for a long time period of time the addiction and challenging that is frightening Mm -hmm. um what what do you see come out in the research or even in your your clinical experience of why that's so scary for people to start challenging those structures
2: well i I think about addiction and bypass much the same way here it's a coping strategy right so it's a way to survive Mm -hmm. um it may actually need to be honored because in some way it may have helped you to be alive. You may not be alive without that bypass or without that addiction. Now it may have been the thing that helped you cope in some situations and some contexts that that were really, no one could cope with them in healthy ways. Mm. Um, So I think it's always important to honor that and to recognize that um, as people are sort of shifting, what I see with clients is they sort of start to shift this, um, um, this idea around bypass and maybe this need to do more psychological work, there actually is a piece in there of, of grieving, of letting go of this old way of kind of being in the world, which is very much like what folks with addictions have to do, right? They have Mm -hmm. to grieve their addiction. It was, it needs to be grieved. I think that's an important part of the healing and recovery process. So, um, I think there's a, a very good parallel there, um, in terms of, of letting go of an old structure that, um, probably on a grander scale in the, in the bigger scheme of things didn't serve you very well, but you know, it was still pretty important and Mm -hmm. it it helped you in some ways and it helped you through some things. And so it needs to be, I think it needs to be honored in that way, even as you're committing to changing that structure, letting that, letting that structure go, it still needs to be honored in a way. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I, I found for myself, and I've said this before, I think with the, um, dysfunctional parents that I grew up with in the family that I was a part of, um, the church or my religion became um, at the time a third parent, right? And one that that seemed to have more answers than either of the parents that I was given. Mm -hmm. And, and I found a lot of safety in that. I found a lot of comfort in that as I was growing and maturing. Um, But there came a time for me that I started to realize my third dysfunctional parent, right? It was easy to see the first two, but in a way the church became its own dysfunctional third parent as I was reaching certain developmental milestones or or looking at some maturity and had to step into continuing my evolvement or continuing my maturity and figuring out that relationship, similar to how I did as I became, you know, a child, a grown child of my parents, like that relationship has to change. Um, and and I had to, you know, look at what I had bypassed or what had served me well through bypass up until that point. But it is, I think, you know, there's been a lot of, they haven't used the words bypassing, but I think there's been like James uh, Fowler stages of faith. He kind of gets into some of the psychology of the evolving. And I like that he calls them, they're all stages of faith, right? We're not going through the stages of atheism, which would be extremely frightening or threatening for somebody of faith. But just looking at there are various stages of faith that you may find yourself in and it's okay. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, um, there is so much in what you just said. Um, but you were really, even as you were telling a bit of your own story and then shifted over to talking about Fowler, you're talking about this developmental process. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And so I, it's just a fundamental premise that I have as a therapist that can I really join you and connect with you and validate you and honor you right where you are now. Mm-hmm. and that that's the foundation for change. Mm-hmm. So I think all too often, I certainly see it in students, I've, I've made this mistake myself, where I, I start with the change part and not the acceptance part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I remind myself, as I try to do, that people are where they are for a reason, there's something in their story. So if I had known you, for example, when you were in that very like rule oriented, um, structured kind of place before that, that 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 next developmental kind of piece started happening for you. Can I meet you right there? Uh, mm-hmm. Can I join you right there and not judge that and not try to sort of yank you into this developmental process? And I think that's really important. But yeah, you're talking about this thing where people, you know, a lot of people move from um, a very externalized kind of religion. Um, they want that they like that structure. They like mm-hmm. the community and that's, that's, that's how fun, but there comes a point in time where that needs to be internalized and I always think about it like when I watch this process for people, that deconstruct that religion of origin in some way, and they might put it back together exactly the same way. Right, mm-hmm. right. Theirs, then, you know. And, and most people, I don't think, put it back together exactly the same way. Most people say, you know, what this this piece doesn't work for me. I need to find a, a different community, or I, I'm going to think about this differently myself in ways that really sort of support their own development. And so, yeah, yeah, that's, I think well, that's and-
0: and that can lead to, I've seen this with clients um, where they maybe can't reconstruct a faith within the tradition that they've been a part of. Uh, but they go and they find a different group or a different tribe to be a part of and they kind of construct the same relationship. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this the exact same way. Um and, and it's still externalized. It hasn't necessarily shifted to this internal um claiming right this internal i'm accountable for myself and and instead it's i'm part of a different group think
2: Mm -hmm. yeah so one yeah uh, an example i think about that a lot of times is um uh, people who are i sort of um call it codependency by faith so people who are in their communities they are they sign up for everything they serve everybody they're always taking care of other people and they get a lot of positive reinforcement for that Mm -hmm. Um, yet it's really not an act of transpersonal service service beyond the ego it really is they are trying to be somebody Mm so service to self so you can have that blow up in one community not do the internal work around shifting that move into another community and just recreate that just do right. thing, because again you're 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 acting in ways that are trying to heal wounds but you're doing it um, You're not sort of going to the source of the pain you're just trying to trying to you know it's that acts of service to be good enough kind of idea mm-hmm. um, accepted by other people so it's, that's i just offer that as an example I think what you're
0: talking about
1: yeah yeah well I love what you said about examining it pulling it apart and you may put it together exactly in the same way but now it's yours Mm -hmm. because you've done your work and to me um I guess that's my my personal definition of spirituality is taking the things in my life the things in my relationships and me being allowed to deconstruct those and to put those together in a way that makes sense for me Mm -hmm. and holds meaning for me Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's really key to recognize uh, that it's not so much the conclusion that we reach. Do you have the right kind of faith? Are you in the right kind of spirituality? And and for me, I think it's much more about engaging in a process that makes sense to you um, and, and is good for you, feels good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting idea. I mean, um, uh, this notion that you might recreate a dysfunctional parent in the religious community is a really Mm -hmm. interesting kind of idea to me because we know that if if we are in a theistic um, tradition, we tend to do the same thing with God or higher power, whatever Mm -hmm. language we use. We tend to conflate that. We tend to project our own families of origin. Mm -hmm. And and there's a, a good body of literature and research on that. But I mean that for me, that was huge. I had to, I I grew up in a dysfunctional family as well and I really had to deconstruct my concept of what I call God um, Mm -hmm. because it was way too attached to my dysfunctional family of origin and and that was going to leave me with a God who was not available to me Mm -hmm. and on a good day not available to me because um, God was distant and on a bad day unavailable to me because I was not wanted and loved Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I really had to do some work around deconstructing that before I could really have what I would consider a genuine encounter experience with the God of my understanding as opposed to just knowing about. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I, think, I think that's such fertile ground for diving into our own spirituality and our own concept and maybe even starting to shift some of those bypass roles is just looking at how similar are my parents to the God that I believe in. And how functional is that for me? Are there parts of the God that I believe in that I deep down I hate the interaction because it feels too familiar? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: yep, absolutely. So when you you know when you start, um, if, if you can um, explore family of origin and religion of origin a little bit with clients, uh, you'll you'll start to see puzzle pieces start to click into place here. Mm-hmm. Like okay, so family of origin, any emotion other than big smiles and happiness was just not tolerated. Um, And that was because this person's father was a pastor and they always had to look good in the church, it starts to make sense why they Mm -hmm. would spiritualize and psychologically avoid their pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, so a lot of times you you just, as you start to get people's narratives, it does really does start to click like, oh, this makes sense, why this person would struggle this
1: way. Yeah. So I'd imagine, Craig, at this point, we've been talking for about thirty minutes. That we have some listeners who are saying, "This is interesting and not applicable." Some that may be angry at what we're talking about, and others that are listening and saying, "This is ringing my bell." Um, to those people that this is resonating with, what would you say are some useful next steps? Like, wh- where do you take this when you, when this is resonating with you?
2: Well, I think you know when when something that's unconscious becomes conscious. Um, in the therapy room, as a therapist, I always am torn between you're welcome and I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) you'll never unsee this again.
2: (laughs) Um, Because it is, you know, we we are talking about sort of taking off a band-aid you know and, and if it gets ripped off too quickly it's like oh that hurt really badly mm-hmm. but it's off now as opposed mm-hmm. to that just agonizing you know tug over time that's it's really painful and so i think you know for me i think it's 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 become conscious so reflecting on it um i do a ton of work in my um in my work as a therapist that could probably best be described as um cultivating mindfulness
1: mm-hmm.
2: like the phrase i use most often is just watch um, sometimes with highly religious christian clients i won't even use the word mindfulness because it might have a negative connotation for them as being overly tied to an eastern religion i don't want to get caught up in that so i'll say just watch just watch that um so just watch that tendency that you have and then you know they'll they'll, they'll come back in and they'll start talking about you know i had this and i and i and I'll often say if, if i feel like they're ready for it and when you notice yourself doing that see if you can stop and go inside and pay attention to what's happening for you emotionally, right? So we're trying to just cultivate that awareness, so mm-hmm. cultivate that conscious awareness of this phenomenon. But I think people often need to talk about this stuff. And mm-hmm. So finding a spiritually sensitive therapist um, who mm-hmm. understands bypass and it's not—it's not, it's not going to minimize it and uh, say it doesn't exist and say no, that spiritual thing you're doing is perfect. Keep doing that. Do more of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that finding that person to talk to would be really, really important.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so your work outside of in the shadows of the cross and your research—is there anywhere else that people can find your work? Find find what you know about spiritual bypass.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we did write about it a little bit in Shadows of the Cross, and that's why we wrote the book as a companion for Facing the Shadows, because we're trying to encourage people to do both the spiritual and the psychological work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked pretty overtly about bypass, and it's 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 very similar to what you're describing, I think, that some people were, some people were probably, it really resonated with them, and some people may have put the book down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um uh, it, I, it, you can, you can certainly look, um, uh, you can look online and find, you know, Google scholars will have some of the articles that I've written over time about spiritual bypass. I'm not the only one writing about bypass, um, There's a colleague of mine at Stetson University, Jesse Fox, who was really the mover and shaker who developed the instrument. Um, I was just fortunate Mm -hmm. enough to be brought alongside his work, really. Um, So he's doing some amazing things there. And then you go back to the the original, um, the the first two folks who talked about it uh, were John Wellwood, um, a Buddhist psychologist who talked about it, and then uh, Charles Whitfield, who many in the addiction mooned and will recognize that name uh, whitfield picked up the term and, and wrote about it in some of his writings so it's been around for you know the term's been around for about 25 years um, it's just really uh, gaining attention and I, i'm getting I, I get requests now you know, a couple three requests a year from doctoral students at different places around the country who are studying uh, studying spiritual bypass and they're interested mm-hmm at it from a research perspective. Again, I think this measure, this developed um, quantitative measure of bypasses, is just gonna, that's going to take off exponentially. So I think we're yeah. at an exciting time where we're really going to to learn a lot about uh, a lot more about bypassing. I'm always, I, I like to understand phenomenon, but I always am, I'm just at the core I'm a so what person. Like, okay, mm-hmm. so that's interesting. do you understand this phenomenon? How do I help an individual client who's sitting across from you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's yeah. where I I hope the research will go in that very applied direction.
1: Yeah. We're going to put some links up in the show notes to some of these resources you've mentioned. Um, this instrument that you've developed, is it published yet? Or It is out, yeah. Um, I would, you can certainly
2: search, um, you can search for it under um, um, the author's, primary author's names are Fox Pichotto, P-I-C-C-I-O-T-T-O. I hope I spelled that right. That's close. Um, and my name, Cashwell, in um, the Spiritual Bypass Scale. Um, and if that doesn't help you, Jesse Fox at Stetson University, or I, uh, you could reach out to me for sure. We can, we can talk to you about the instrument, what we're doing with it. Um, we'd love to see this used more broadly.
1: Yeah, great, very exciting stuff. Um, we appreciate you taking some time to talk with us yeah. um, and to share your expertise and your knowledge.
2: My pleasure, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. thank you
0: so at the end of this episode we want to remind you that your story matters remember there is something meaningful in every chapter don't wait to share your story till it's finished
1: you can share your story with us on our facebook page healing paths inc or on our website www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com
0: this podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy nor should it replace competent professional help
1: At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress.
0: And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me.
1: Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.